0: Our text this morning is from chapter 1 of Philippians. We'll continue in our series, and we'll actually be closing chapter 1. We'll be looking at verses 27 through 30, and Paul's charge to the Philippians after he spends the opening portion of the chapter describing the affairs and trials that he is going over. My friends, let us hear from God's Word. Philippians chapter 1. Verses 27 through 30. Hear the word of God. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or I am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, and not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. Engage in the same conflict that I saw, you saw that I had, and now hear that I still have. May God bless the reading of his word. It is absolutely true. And it is given to you by your Father in heaven, because he loves you. Let's pray. Father, we come before you. We ask that you would impart upon us your word, that you would instruct us again this morning, Father. That you would show us our sin, that you would show us our need. And Lord, you would meet us there. That you would equip us as saints to fulfill the call to love the world, and to love our neighbor, and to love each other in this room. Lord, may we not just be hearers of your word, but doers as well. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. As a child, most of my travel was within the continental United States. In fact, it wasn't until the mid-90s, at the age of 20, that I received my first passport and took my first real international trip. Since then, I've traveled to more than a dozen countries over four continents, I love having a passport and the freedom that comes with being able to travel the globe. One of the things I enjoy the most, though, about owning a passport, apart from the travel itself, is looking at all the foreign stamps and signatures and stickers that I've received. The colors, the emblems, the scripts of the foreign languages are very unique. But apart from their appearance, I also enjoy them because they are symbolic reminders of what these countries represent, value and believe in. And the type of symbolism present in these foreign stamps and stickers and writing, well, it's also reflected on our own American passports. You may have noticed that. In fact, on the third page of an American passport contains the preamble of our Constitution. And at the bottom of this page, if you have a passport, you know this, is where you place your signature. But signing your passport, that does not just identify this document as yours, but the inclusion of the preamble in connection with the place of your signature identifies and signifies that all the rights and responsibilities constituted in the, contained in the Constitution belong to you as an American citizen rights and responsibilities, along with the quality of life that many of the countries I've traveled to do not provide their own citizens. This is why, despite my love for travel, I always reach a point in my journeys when I'm ready to come home. I think this is why also so many people try to immigrate into the United States, either legally or illegally. While not wholly analogous, Rome, like the US, provided rights and responsibilities and a quality of life to its citizens that set them apart from other lands and were desired by non-citizens living both within and outside the boundaries of the empire. Likewise, citizens of the empire possessed documents that identified them as Roman, thus guaranteeing them certain privileges. Though the laws of citizenship changed and the recipients of these rights broadened over time, as Rome changed from a kingdom to a republic to an empire, the following is a sample of rights that Roman citizens, particularly men, enjoyed. They had the right to hold hold office and vote, make contracts, own property, lawfully marry, have children become citizens of those marriages, be exempt from certain local taxes, sue, defend oneself in court, have a trial with a judge, make an appeal, And lastly, no Roman citizen could be tortured, whipped, or receive the death penalty unless found guilty of treason. For our purposes, it's important to note that many of the people living in Philippi during the time of Paul's ministry were Roman citizens. A large majority of them were, in fact. And the Philippians were proud of the fact that they were citizens and enjoyed the types of lists, or the types of rights that I listed above. They were also proud that Augustus designated the city as a Roman colony. You see, a city designated as a Roman colony functioned as a mini-Rome. And within Philippi, though originally Greek, the official language became Latin, the civil administration became Roman, and their religious attitudes changed as traditional gods were renamed, usurped, or abandoned in favor of the imperial Roman cult. Paul was a Roman citizen himself. And he was acutely aware of these rights, responsibilities, and this quality of life, as well as the pride and trappings of living within a Roman colony. This is why he utilizes particular language within the letter to Philippians, as we'll consider here in a moment, that touches on the nature of citizenship. You see, whether the Christian Philippians were Roman citizens or not, whether they were Greek or Jewish, Foreign, freedmen, slaves, men, women, children, rich or poor, Paul wanted the church to understand that there is a greater citizenship beyond what Rome could provide, that there is a greater citizenship which Christians share in, and that there are greater rights, responsibilities, and a manner of living that Christians are guaranteed and called to as citizens of heaven. But unfortunately, my brothers and sisters, Like me and like other Christians in times past and present, we often ignore this reality. We often identify and live to our own detriment within the light of our temporal national citizenship instead of identifying and living within the light of our eternal celestial citizenship. But as Paul reminds us in this text, since we are first and foremost citizens of heaven, we are called to live and suffer in a manner worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ, forsaking even our own national rights, responsibilities, and quality of life to do so. So if you find yourself wondering about the nature of your own Christian citizenship, well, I've got good news for you this morning. But what's our starting point, Jeff? Where do we begin? Well, I have two points I wanna share with you this morning, two gospel truths I wanna communicate, and here's our first point. As citizens of heaven, We are called to live in unity with one another and in the face of fear. Look back at the beginning of our text in verse 27. Paul says to the Philippians, Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or I am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. Now, unfortunately, Paul's verse 27 citizenship language is lost in most English translations. Without going into the specifics of the Greek, the opening phrase, only lit your manner of life, would be rendered as to live as citizens or to exercise or perform the rights and duties of citizens. You see, a proper understanding of these opening words is important because it establishes Paul's perspective on what it means to be a good citizen and the argumentation he sets forth regarding how to accomplish that charge. However, Paul is not speaking about being a good earthly Roman citizen for the sake of the empire, but of being a heavenly citizen that lies, I'm sorry, that lives worthy of the gospel of Christ within the midst of this Roman colony of Philippi. This truth is expressed in the modern Christian sentiment, which is based upon several verses, but it's not Christian scripture itself when we say Christians are called to be in the world, but not of the world. Of course, the call for the Philippian Christians to live as citizens of heaven in the midst of this Roman context, and the call for us as citizens and Christians of heaven in the midst of our own Western American context is one thing, but to know what to do and how to do it, and then to actually do it, well, that's an entirely different thing altogether. So what is Paul actually asking the Philippian Christians and us modern Christians to do as citizens of heaven? While Paul desires to be reunited with his favorite congregation, a congregation that he holds near and dear to his own heart, he is preparing them and himself for the possibility of his own absence. But regardless of whether Paul is present with the Philippians or absent from them, he expects to hear from them. Now, this this hearing, it's more than just a general update about how the Philippian Christians are doing vis-a-vis a vacation postcard or news report about Philippi's weather, crime, and current political issues. No, Paul, he has just spent the first part of his letter outlining his affairs in verses 1 through 26, what Josh has preached on these past few weeks, whereby Paul discusses his suffering and imprisonment and how this is serving to advance the gospel as well as how he hopes his ministry will aid the Philippians in their progress and joy in the faith. So, in the Philippians' reply, Paul is expecting to hear similar news. He wants encouragement, since the Philippians are partners with him in the gospel, and partners with him of the same grace. He wants to hear that they are abounding in love, approving what is excellent, and filled with the fruit of righteousness and preparation for the day of Christ. Paul wants to hear they are living as citizens of heaven, just as he is doing and just as he is exampled to them. And this this is the same case with us, beloved. The missionaries we support, such as John and Ellen Berger, Wes and Jamie Baker, and Doug and Masha Shepherd, to name a few of the missionaries we support, they also want to hear from us. They want to know that they are not alone. They want to be encouraged. They want to know their work is valued And they also want us to know as their partners that they support our ministry as well. But even more specifically, Paul also wants to hear whether the Philippians are standing firm in the spirit with one mind striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. He wants to hear about their gospel advancing news. However, the news is not so much about end results, about how many people came to faith, but about the manner in which they are living as citizens of heaven to advance the gospel, the means. Standing firm and striving side by side speaks to a type of unity, to a type of alignment in which the whole Philippian community shares together. But this this unity, it's not grounded in a common outlook on life or vision casting for outreach. No, this standing firm and striving side by side, it's grounded in the Holy Spirit, and so the phrase in one spirit expresses Paul's desire to hear if the Holy Spirit is present among them and that they are unified in him. And the phrase with one mind refers to the outflowing which occurs when Christian community when within a Christian community they are united to the Holy Spirit. You see the Holy Spirit is the only reason why it is possible for the Philippian Christians or for any group of Christians for that matter, including us here this morning, to stand firm and to strive side by side as they contend for the faith of the gospel. Because the Philippians, they themselves, they cannot advance the gospel in their own strength and power, just as Paul, who is imprisoned and facing potential execution, cannot do it on his own strength either. This is why Paul dearly wants to know how they are doing spiritually spiritually. You see, he knows they are currently and will continue to face opposition, even if that opposition is different from his own. So he wants to hear whether they are progressing in their union with Christ and still striving side by side to determine if they are prepared to live worthily in the light of this opposition. Now I know what you're thinking. You're thinking, well, what what does that even look like? Well, Paul tells us in the following verse. He says, be not frightened in anything by your opponents for this is a clear sign to them of their destruction but of your salvation and that from God. For Paul living as citizens of heaven means living without fear but not only are we to live without fear but we are to live without fear in anything we face from our opponents. Now how is that possible in Where does the strength come from to do such a thing? Because there are a lot of frightening things in the world. Frightening things that come from our enemies or just generally from living in a sinful, fallen world. Well first, and here it's in our text, it's possible because our strength comes from above, from the union we share in Christ due to the ongoing work of the Holy Spirit in our individual and collective lives as the church. Second, it's possible because we as Christians, we're not alone. We have each other, beloved. And this is an important reality that cannot be overstated. But unfortunately, it is undervalued. I know that for myself, I'm at my weakest and most vulnerable when separated from other Christians. And I imagine that is the same for you, my friends. You know, we're, we're easy prey when living on the periphery, isolated from the body of Christ, while doing life on our own and in the strength of our own flesh. That sets us up for fear and failure when attacked by the enemies, both internally internally and externally. That's why so many passages within the Old and the New Testament focus on unity in God and amongst the brethren, as it does in Deuteronomy 6.4, in the opening call to Israel, where it says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord is God, the Lord is one. Or in Ecclesiastes 4, when Solomon writes, Two are better than one. For if they fall, one will lift up his fellow man. But woe to him who is alone when he falls and has not another to lift him up. Though a man might prevail against one who is alone, two will withstand him. A threefold cord is not easily broken. Or finally in our examples of text in 1 Corinthians chapter 12. Paul says this, For just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many, are one body, So it is with Christ. For in one spirit, we were all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. And the eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you, or the head to the feet, I have no need of you. If one member suffers, all suffers. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. You are the body of Christ. And finally, it's, it's possible to live as citizens of heaven without fear and in the face of enemies, in the face of our enemies, when we the church, both individually and collectively, have a firm understanding of the eschaton and a certainty about our own eternal destination along with that of our enemies. This is why Paul highlights that the Philippians' lack of fear will serve as a sign of their enemies' demise and of their own salvation. You see, when you, when you understand that Christ has already defeated death and conquered all his and our enemies, when you really internalize that, when you pour over that, then you can live in the light of that knowledge and have no reason to fear. Because we are, we are already victorious in Christ. The outcome has already been decided. All we need to do is trust in the Lord and by his grace live faithfully before him regardless of the circumstances we face. This is why Paul proclaims so confidently, and earlier in the chapter he says, for me to live as Christ and to die as gain. Or when Job says this profound statement, he says, although he, that is Yahweh, slay me, yet will I trust him. Or when David writes in the Psalms, when am I afraid, I put my trust in you, in God I trust I shall not be afraid. What can mortal flesh do to me? Either way, my friends, it's a a win-win situation, particularly when you understand that both faith and suffering, and this is key, when faith and suffering are seen as gifts from God to his people, and to be used for the glory and sake of Christ. And this leads us to our second and final point, and that is, as citizens of heaven, We have been granted faith and suffering and are called to engage in the same conflict for Christ's sake. Look again at verse 29. Paul says, For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. You know, it's it's easy to accept that God gives us faith in him and that it's his work in us and not our own doing. That's clearly presented in Ephesians chapter 2. But it is a far, far more difficult truth to accept that suffering is also a gift from the Lord and that it is also his work in us. That was the hard reality I had to come to terms with when facing my cancer diagnosis, treatment, and recovery over the past two years. However, with some more perspective I can more clearly see it was a blessing, that it was a gift to me, and that suffering was not random or purposeless, but it had meaning. Now, don't hear what I'm not saying. I'm not saying it was enjoyable. I am not saying it was easy. And I'm not saying I would like to do it again, because I would like not to. On the contrary, it was hard. It was painful. And if given the choice, I would never choose that. Nor am I saying that any of the particular ways that each of you have, are, and will suffer is enjoyable, easy, or painless, because suffering, no matter what shape it comes, is none of those. However, just as Jesus prayed in the Garden of Gethsemane, so we also are to pray, Father, if you are willing, take this cup from me, yet not my will but yours be done. And therein lies the crux of it all, my friends. You see, suffering is something that we are to receive from God because suffering is a part of the Christian life that we are in to engage in. It is part of what unites us together with Christ and defines us as citizens of heaven. Paul highlights this in verse 30 when he says, Engage in the same conflict that you saw I had and now hear that I still have. Instead of Paul, wrapping up this section of his letter by saying, well, this suffering will go away, he he doubles down on it and actually emphasizes that this suffering will continue and that we should actually engage in it, particularly since we are all partakers in the same conflict. Now, most likely, this conflict refers to his and the Philippians' common suffering at the hands of Rome. Since persecution in the form of martyrdom, it was not present in Philippi at this time. But regardless of the differences and the suffering Paul and the Philippians faced back then or the differences and the suffering that we all face here today, know that Colossians chapter 1:24 applies to all of us. It was a verse that, I brought, that the Lord brought to my attention many days. Like Paul, all of us are filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body that is the church. I found that I still find this verse extremely encouraging because of the purpose attached to our individual and collective suffering. You see, the Lord uses the circumstances of our respective suffering as a means for reciprocal ministry amongst his people. We are all in this together. And because we are all in this together, the gospel is advancing. For me personally, I drew great courage from knowing that all of you were praying earnestly for me when I was sick. As my faith and confidence grew due to your prayers, the anxiety and fear that I had for myself and for my family waned. Conversely, many of you have expressed to me at that time, and even still do now, how encouraged you were in your own faith, how the Lord increased your hope and trust in him in the midst of your own suffering through the context of my particular trial. You see, how we live in the light of suffering matters. It matters because our suffering serves as a vehicle for expressing God's love to a watching world when we share in one another's conflict, when we take on one another's burdens. Even though it confounds the world since the world cannot understand how a people can live with joy when they find themselves, when they would find themselves feel fearful. But but isn't that what Jesus Christ did for us? Didn't he share in the conflict by accepting our sin as his own? by taking God's wrath upon himself, and by dying on our place on the cross, in the person of Jesus Christ manifested through his his life, death, and resurrection, there is no greater example of what a citizen of heaven looks like in the light of suffering on the behalf of others than through Jesus. My friends, this morning, our citizenship is It's not marked by the rights and responsibilities afforded to us by our Constitution. It's not marked by our identification papers. It's not marked by our ability to vote, to hold office, to own a house. It's not marked by our ability to make contracts or defend ourselves in court. It's not marked by our accomplishments, our jobs, associations, wealth, quality of life, or even our zip codes. No, our citizenship is marked by God's call for us as Christians to live and suffer in a manner worthy of the gospel, whereby we show ourselves standing firm in the Holy Spirit, with one mind, striving side by side, without fear, in the face of our enemies, all the while aiding one another in the proper stewardship of the gifts of our respective sufferings as we participate in the advancement of the gospel, for the sake of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, the one who did the very same for each of us on the cross. My friends, that is the nature of Christian heavenly citizenship, and that's also the glorious grace of the gospel. Let us bow our heads for prayer. Father, we we come before you. We ask, Lord, that you would help us by the power of your spirit to live worthy of the gospel of Christ, that you would help us to see our citizenship of heaven as first and foremost, that we would live in the light of that, that we would live without fear We would accept the good and the bad, the suffering from you as gifts to be used for the benefit of your people and for a watching world. We pray that you would change our hearts, change our lives. We ask this in your name. Amen.